Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am, as always, so glad to spend this time with you. It's going to be a wonderful hour. Guy Talk is going to be happening uh, momentarily. And then also uh, in the second hour, Mark McClish will be joining me. He was a U.S. Marshal for 26 years and has written four books on lying and and, uh, how to spot deception. It's going to be a very interesting hour but uh, my power panel today uh, for Guide Talk will be Dr. Peter Kapsner and pastors Tom Brock and Tom Parrish. Gentlemen, welcome to the big show. Great to be here, Bill. Good to be with you. How are you guys doing? Whoever wants well, to go we're first. We're watching what's going on and trying to do what we can to proclaim the Lord. Yeah, indeed. Uh, very difficult, challenging times in our world. Um, anybody... Yeah, you know, it's, comment? I know it's been, I've got all kinds of questions for you. Yeah, it seems like obviously the the um, news kind of it changes and evolves and expands uh, each day. So you you start to start getting your head around something, and then something else comes out, and it just a lot to keep up with. And I, I think I was talking to somebody over dinner the other night, and uh, I don't know how you guys feel, but but fatigue is setting in, and the importance of these issues that we're dealing with right now should absolutely resist fatigue. But if you watch too much of the news, and you can kind of get desensitized and a little bit tired from it all, and and uh, we it's such a critical time and juncture in our nation's history mm-hmm. about whether maybe will this finally be the the thing that breaks the camel's back, as it were, and uh, and we're we're going to be done on some level of police brutality, and and we need to stay present to this because otherwise, if we if we allow ourselves to get desensitized and fatigued, we're going to miss a really important opportunity here. Good word. Yeah, yeah that's a good word. All right, let's uh, jump into a couple of questions. Uh, I was reading this, and it says, "For this is the message you heard from the beginning: we should love one another. Do not be like Cain." who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. So my question was, at what point did Cain belong to the evil one? Peter, I'm going to point the direction at you to get started. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, so it's an interesting passage of Scripture about this idea of belonging to the evil one and uh, and Cain's sacrifice obviously being rejected by God. So. I think there's a couple things that we could look at in that biblical text a little bit. And, and the first of them is that in that letter to John, the primary concern is that we are people who are being filled with love. And and love is, is defined by the idea that um, I care much more about somebody else's well-being ahead of myself. And I'm willing to give of myself for somebody else's well-being in that way. And, and God's kingdom just pulsates with that kind of love. I mean, it's the very love that God demonstrated, obviously, when he sent his son, is that he cared about the well-being of his creation ahead of his own. And so we see all of that. And that's a contrast to what we see in the life of Cain. And not just in Cain, but there's other times in Scripture 
where people's sacrifices don't get received by God. And, and that's kind of this ding, ding, ding moment to say, so when are those times that a sacrifice doesn't get received? And how could we understand Cain through that? You look at uh, Korah, when his sacrifice was rejected in the book of Numbers, he was trying to set himself up in the place of leadership. It was about himself. It was about his own well-being. Uh, you look at Saul, when his uh, sacrifice was rejected as well. He was uh, concerned about his uh, kingship, his throne, his own well-being. You see other times their sacrifices are rejected. And so this whole Cain and Abel story was not as much about the idea that Abel somehow brought the right fruit to the table to get sacrificed or whatever it was. And then, you know, that there was a difference in their sacrifices, fruit versus meat. It wasn't anything about that. It was about the state of Cain's heart, that somehow in all of that, God was able to discern what was going on in Cain's heart. And in contrast to God's beautiful kingdom of love, which is about other people, Cain was somehow seeking to exalt himself, perhaps over his brother. God rejected that. That is the very heartbeat, by contrast, of the kingdom of the evil one, where it is setting yourself up in the place of God, it is resisting God, it is defying God, it is self-centered, it is um, self-indulgent, it is all of those things. So Cain belonged to the evil one in those moments, um, not so much because he was possessed by the evil one or anything like that. In the original Greek, it says he sort of is in alignment with or coming out of the evil one in those moments because he's finding himself much more in alignment with the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of God. It almost sounds like you got that question in advance. You know, you, you would think, Bill, that uh, that sometimes I get just a random text from yeah. a number. I don't even know. And it happened to come up. So who knows? Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if you gentlemen have anything to add to that. I'm so impressed well, you know, with Peter, I don't know what to say. Yeah, yeah that's I, just off the top of my head, Parrish, as you'd imagine. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, those obscure references, they just come natural. When I think of Cain, well, I think of there's a pattern throughout Scripture. Sin, judgment, grace. Sin, judgment, grace. Sin, ju- like Adam and Eve, sin, they ate the fruit. Judgment, they're kicked out of the garden. Grace, God made them clothing. Uh, Cain, sin, he killed his brother. Judgment, he's kicked out of the land of the living grace, God puts a mark on him so nobody can kill him. Uh, Noah, sin, sin of the world. Judgment, God floods it. Grace, Noah is saved in his family. All the way to the New Testament, the biggest example, sin, the sin of the world. Judgment, Jesus bears our our punishment for our sin. Grace, he rises from the dead and saves those who believe. So I I just, you know, you can do a whole five-year-old five-year-long sermon series on all the stories in the Bible, Old and New Testament, of sin, God judging it, but then God granting grace. You know, I hope we're going to, with all of the protests going on, with all of the violence and looting, with all of the people dying of the coronavirus, I think we're seeing sin, judgment, and now we got to pray for God's grace. When you talk about Cain, it's interesting because I'm looking at First John, Three twelve. Mm-hmm. Who is of the evil one? I think sometimes we we read more into the text than the Greek or the translation tells us, and I think Peter touched on it. It's not that Cain was always an evil one in the sense that he never honored God or he never did anything right. But coming up to this moment, and I don't know how long it took, whether it was days, weeks, months, he drifted away from the Lord and gave himself over in his thinking to evil, self-centeredness, and that is when you belong to the evil one. Now, we're all capable of doing that. All of us have thoughts and desires that we don't understand, that don't make sense. That's why we have repentance. We can repent. And even in the midst of Cain's sin, and it was a horrible sin, the grace of the Lord was still there. And I want everybody listening to know this. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. Even if you're like Cain, you can still receive the grace of Jesus and his forgiveness when you go to him and admit it. 
Really nice response uh, by all of you. I'm very impressed. They didn't even have it ahead of time. I they mean, it was which, way better. Which one, did you, which one did you like the best, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I gave Peter a heads up, but Tom Brock, uh, I was very surprised by your response. And, and Tom Parrish, you really did a nice cleanup in the in the, in the the cleanup position. So. Yes, yes. But Bill, which team. one did you like? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I liked them all. <laughs> nicely what done. Diplomat. Yeah, nicely done. So that passage in Scripture where it says, you know, if if your if your hearts condemn you, know that God doesn't. Where is that again? <laughs> John, I think First John, isn't it? Is that First John? If, if, is if that God back? condemns us, God is bigger than our hearts. God is if bigger our than our, condemn, yeah. if our hearts condemn us, God yes. is bigger than there our hearts. There you go. So based yeah. on, on that passage, uh, why do so many people, after they understand that God loves them and has forgiven them, continue to beat themselves up? Hmm. Well, I think you've got the double working overtime on people. Okay. Uh, I think that's a big one. People trying to convince you, did that really happen? Was that really true? I remember one of my uh, pastor friends, older pastor, said, you know, Tom, if you had been there when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, he said, I'm confident that within 10 minutes you'd be saying to Jesus, can you do it again just a little bit slower? Because it doesn't matter what we see. We have a tendency in our hearts to wander away. And we're to be brought back into that fold. But the devil's working all the time on us, telling us we're not worthy, we're not good enough. And we aren't in that sense. But we forget about what Jesus has done, and we listen too much to the voices of others or our own voices. And uh, I'm just as guilty. I mean, I'm just as guilty of putting myself down and of thinking I'm not worthy. And the truth is, I'm not. But I know Jesus is. And I heard a sermon when I was, I think, 19 years old. And the pastor said, every time you sin, immediately do three things. Number one, immediately confess it. The word confess means agree with. And God, I agree with you. That was wrong. Number two, immediately put it under the blood. God, I believe Jesus paid for this, so I'm forgiven. And then he said, number three, immediately forget about it. God's forgiven you. Forgive yourself and move on. And I, that to me was such a good sermon because I was in the trap before as if I'd sinned, I'd ask God's forgiveness. But if I didn't feel forgiven, then I, oh, God, please, for, I mean, I'd ask five or six times for God to forgive me for one sin. And and I learned, no, what you do is you confess it once, you claim First John 1, 9, that if we confess, he forgives, then you forgive yourself, and you move on. What about I people? think so, Tom, oh, you're ahead, unusual. Tom yep. I think you're unusual, and I appreciate that. My experience in counseling for 40 years with Christians and non-Christians so many Christians would come into my office and say, you know, I've been going to this church all my life. My dad was an elder. I gave my heart to Jesus when I was 25. I've been on the council. I've gone on evangelism tours. And yet, I keep hearing the center voice that says, you're not worth it. Why don't you just kill yourself and get it over with? Why bother? You really think people love you and respect what you have to say? You're worthless. Now, the first time I heard that, I was really shook. But I will tell you guys, I've heard that over 150 times from Christians who hear these inner voices but have nobody to talk to. Nobody, they don't know how to bring it up. How do you bring it up in church? By the way, Pastor, good sermon, but no, my inner voice is telling me I'm worthless. We don't do that, and even in small groups we avoid it. But I think the problem's out there, and we have to help people go back to the Word and put the focus on Jesus, not on ourselves. That's why I pay you the big money, Tom Parrish. All right, let me take a little, (laughs) let me take a little break. Uh, let me know if you have a question for the power panel today. You can send me the text to 
844-933-2484. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to uh, try to answer your questions. We'll be back in just a minute. is a playfulness, not a serious <laughs> comment. Uh, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. That's <laughs> <laughs> how we often feel sometimes, indeed. Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, Tom Paris, Justin, Pastor Justin Jepson claims he's on something with his yeah, wife I know. today, We're carrying enjoying his, his time. Sure. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, Seems kind of fishy. Best, yeah. Carry the water for him all the time. <laughs> okay, um, let's go back to this, so why we don't forgive ourselves so readily. Uh, Peter, did you have a comment on that? Well, one of the things that comes to mind is is I wonder what our expectations are when we first turn our face towards the Lord and say yes, and we repent, and we say we want to be freed from our sin, and, and all of what goes in that beautiful acceptance of the gospel. And is our expectation at that point, then I'm not going to struggle, I'm not going to wrestle, there's not going to be anything that goes wrong with my life, I'm sort of on this spiritual high, I've been celebrated by the community, I've been welcomed, whatever all of that looks like. But I don't know too many environments in which uh, not too long after somebody first turns and repents and says yes to following Jesus in that way, that somebody comes and said, you know what, the struggle's not over, by the way. Uh, it's going to continue to be a wrestling match from here on out in, in this lifetime. And I think about Paul's words at the end of Romans 7. Uh, a person who has clearly been converted, knocked off his horse. There's no question about where he's headed in his life. And yet he is sort of in this agonizing place at the end of Romans 7 where he's like, you know, in my inner being, I delight in God's law now, but I try to go do the work that my heart is, uh, is prompting me to do, and I, I can't do it. And I find that there's other, something else going on. There's this law of sin and death that is in the members of my flesh, as he begins to describe it. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin and death? This is somebody who has turned his heart towards Jesus, and he is looking at himself and saying, oh, wretched man that he is. And, and I just think, I wonder what we're setting people up for. What, what is the expectation? You're now just freed. You're not going to be doing that specific sin anymore now that you've repented. And I see it among my young people, often Bill, that they do have this moment of, um, of salvation hit them and they turn their face towards Jesus and then they do what they would term to be backsliding. And they begin to backslide and old behaviors return. And the way they try to remedy that is they go and get themselves saved again. <laughs> they decide to pray the prayer again. I often ask my young people in my class, how many times have you prayed the sinner's prayer? And it isn't unusual at all to see people having prayed it 7, 10, 15, 20 times. And, and so what's going into that and what are we setting people up for? And is there a different invitation mm-hmm. in all of this in terms of the ongoing battle, but the ongoing freedom and, uh, and, the, and the fact that we really are still being sown perishable in this life. We're waiting to be raised imperishable when sin will no longer have sway. I think those are things we need to talk about. And so as, if listeners are thinking that they're somehow beating themselves up or they've questioned their salvation, we get that question a lot, right? I mean, mm-hmm. can you lose your, all of these sorts of things? No, we're still in a battle in, in this life. We have a different um, energy in our life. And it's not just an energy. It's a person and the Holy Spirit who help, it can help rescue us from that body of sin and death. But it's not going to be an automatic process. Great point. I think, too, we should, we should talk about the importance of Holy Communion 
You know, Jesus yes. gave us communion for a reason. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And they were, it looks like from the book of Acts, they were taking communion every week. Uh, breaking of bread is probably a reference to communion. And in communion, the words are said, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what Jesus said at, at the institution. Now, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. And because after we're converted and saved, we still sin in thought, word, and deed regularly, we need to regularly take communion. And instead of praying the sinner's prayer over and over, just say the sinner's prayer once, accept Christ, never pray it again because he will never leave you nor forsake you, but you'll still need to take communion a lot. <laughs> just And, and the reason for communion, it, it's the, you know, I, I'm forgiven of my sins before I go up and take communion. So why do I go up? Well, it's because like we've been talking about the last 10 minutes, we still got this thing called a guilty conscience, and we still got this enemy called the devil who condemns us and says, well, you're not really saved, which is why I need to hear the Word of God. Shed for the forgiveness of all your sins, uh, and, and I'm, I'm forgiven before I go up and take communion, but communion helps assure my guilty heart that it really is true. Yeah, Tom, I appreciate yeah, your point about uh, communion on that, sure. too, because I know for me growing up, I, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and there was a sense in which uh, the bread and the wine, as they were practicing, um, very much turned into the body and blood, uh, the actual body and blood of Christ. And then I, my parents became Protestants, and we started going to Baptist or Evangelical Free Church, and now communion was simply more of a symbolic act where we remembered the past. And you guys being Lutherans, you can collect, correct me if I'm wrong, there's still really a sense within the Lutheran tradition that that maybe the bread and the wine stays bread and wine, but Jesus is somehow present as well alongside of the bread and wine in all of that. There's a real presence. And, and my understanding is, is that when he said, do this in remembrance of me, as he was telling his disciples that, that idea to remember isn't just to like look back on past events. But what he meant by that is that as you remember, the, the power and the presence of the past events will once again be made known in the present moment. My, my redemptive power is available here at this communion table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that would create an, an, how would I call it, an illusion in the church that once you prayed the prayer to receive Jesus, or once you come into the church, then all of that should be in the past. And people don't understand, it is an ongoing battle. In my first congregation, I've been there about two years, preaching up the storm, the church was growing, and then I pull out the text, Romans seven twenty four that says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I thought, great text, I think I'll preach it. And I got up there, and I preached up a storm and told them how I am wretched at times, and I have my doubts. And once in a while I hear these inner voices I have to reject and whatever. After the service, the place was very quiet, and a woman walked up to me and said, I can't come to church anymore. I thought you were a more spiritual man than that. Hmm. And she walked out. And, and uh. I, I stood there and was shocked. However, that was a door opening because from that day forward, people began to come to see me because they were having the same problems. They didn't know what to do with it, and they didn't know who to talk to. And how do you talk to a perfect pastor? Tom, doesn't struggle with it. Tom, why would your mom do that? <laughs> well, she was an honest, good woman who really cared about me and wanted me to be saved. Okay. Bless her heart. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, uh, appreciate that. All right, uh, ready for another a new question? Yeah. Yes. Because right. yeah. we're back on this topic of why you know we, we can't forgive ourselves. A question came in, uh, what if you can't stop doing the sin? Will God keep forgiving me every time I ask because I did it again? Examples would be lust or foul language. Hmm. 
Well, if I can butt butt in on this, when I get the question, Pastor, will God forgive me if I keep doing the same sin over and over? My response is, I sure hope so. Because isn't there everybody on the planet that has had that problem? And if, I mean, anytime there's true repentance and faith in Christ, there's forgiveness of sins. Mm. So, you know, Jesus said to Peter, you have, you know, Peter said, do I have to forgive this guy seven times a day? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. So if I have to do that for you, God's doing at least that much for me. So there's there's two truths we should, we should affirm. Number one is, yes, whenever you repent and turn to God, if you, even if you've done it for the 500th time, there is forgiveness with the Lord. Now, having said that, the next thing to say is, now you need to fight and get help and get a prayer partner, an accountability partner. Yeah. And if, you, if you're having problem with fill-in-the-blank, lust, pornography, gossip, greed, do you have somebody in your life that you're confessing your sins to, that you're praying with? And Because if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. And the reason we have people so defeated, nobody's confessing their sins to anybody, nobody's accountable to anybody, well, then, of course, you're going to keep sinning. So, you you know, the, the, it's true that God always forgives the penitent sinner who has their faith in Christ. It's also true, 1 Corinthians 6, don't be deceived, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you're living in a penitent sin, you're not going to heaven. There has to be a fight. And if there's no fight, you're just living in it. Uh, that's evidence that you haven't been born again. Mm, yeah. Here, Tom, is something my mother taught me since you brought my mother up. <laughs> so, long as you, so long as you keep your sin in isolation, that is, if I have a lust problem or I have a, a greed problem and I keep sinning and sinning and sinning and then say, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, but I've been doing this now for four or five months, five or five years, 50 years, and not taking it to the body of Christ, that is, to another believer or a small group of believers that will support me and hold me accountable, I'm staying in the devil's playground. He loves mm-hmm. to keep me isolated. And yet the Scripture never says, you know, and when we confess our sins, just do it to yourself, or it's just between you and the Lord. You're right, Tom. In the New Testament, we have a very strong passage that says, confess your sins to one another. And yes, rarely do we ever do that. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're defeated. But we need that because that's where the yeah. strength is. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, the only piece I might add, it's, I 100% agree with you guys, is that just, you know, is God really that beautifully good that the, the passage of Scripture is true where it says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, you know? And, and if we if you can just sit with that passage for a little bit, as sin is abounding, grace is abounding all the more. And, and so what is the difference really between a soft heart and a hard heart? Uh, it's not necessarily the evidence of the pattern of sin. It is the, it's the pattern of the fight. It's the pattern of the desire to change. Mm-hmm. It's the pattern of, of not shaking your fist at God and raging against God, but, but staying in those places. And I think what people find if they're willing to stay in that fight for even years and years and years at a time as grace continues to abound even as sin is abounding what they might end up finding is that they move into places of deeper and more profound brokenness in their lives which is always yeah. that place that's the threshold of God's kingdom it's, it's blessed are those that know they don't have what it takes uh, Matthew 5 for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and, and that's the invitation there alright we'll be right back with Guide Talk I got some great questions coming in we'll get to those questions after the break but if you have a question let it, me know what it is 877-933-2400 84. That's a text only. 877-933-2484. I don't want to exclude people that don't have uh, internet. If you if you only have a phone, you can certainly call. Um, I don't want to frustrate you, but we'll uh, figure out a way to take your call. 
I just got a big no from Rebecca. All right. <laughs> we'll, t- we'll take a short break and be back. Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, the power panel today. Gentlemen, here's a question that came in from a listener. Uh, my question for the guys is this. As a minister of the gospel, how much time and energy do you spend in addressing the cultural issues of the day versus staying on point with preaching the word? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would guess I would hope that the word would define the addressing of the, uh, the cultural issues of the day. I mean, this isn't just to become um, more... Clearly, we want to have more biblical knowledge, but it is so that our lenses with which we view the world are informed by the scriptures. And, and even if the scriptures doesn't address, they don't address maybe specific things going on in the world, they give a perspective to, they, they help us um, shape our understanding of what's going on in the world. So I, I would say it's a both and, but clearly we need to um, understand perhaps the scriptures far more deeply than we might. And, and when we do, I think we find that we end up with wisdom to deal with things in this world around us that, again, scripture may not uh, entirely address in that way. That's a good word. I think part of it is you have to stay very, very wise and balanced on this. The doesn't matter what the problem is. I mean, I'm I'm old enough. I remember the '60s. I remember the the rioting over the Vietnam War. I remember Detroit when it went through a big riot. I remember a lot of these issues from way back when the Civil Rights Movement. Here's the bottom line: um, those problems come and go, as bad as they are, and I wish they didn't exist. But the, I'm, I'm listening to all the answers people are giving, you know, and agreed. The police have to change. There needs better training, et cetera, talk to the community. But the bottom line is it's the human heart. And if we don't preach the gospel and tell people the real answer is not going to be in just new laws or new government or new mayors or any of that kind of stuff, but in the human heart being changed and given over to Jesus, this problem will continue in the next generation and the next generation. So for me, mm-hmm. as a preacher of the word, I made sure that the message was always ultimately on the gospel. I would bring in these issues. I would talk about them, but I would always say, look, the answer is to get on your knees, to repent, change your mind, and then go do something about it. And and I would add that, you know, let's take the Apostle Paul as our model, role model. How often did Paul talk about overthrowing slavery in the Roman Empire? Uh, he kind of didn't. He did say to the slaves, if you, if you can get your freedom, get it. But overwhelmingly, Paul's goal was not to get rid of slavery or to get rid of Caesar or to get rid of oppression. His goal was to preach Christ crucified for the salvation of the souls. I mean, I think we need to talk about racism, abortion, pornography, all you know, gay pride month that we're just entering. You know, we need to address that. But overwhelmingly, we need to preach Christ crucified. Yeah, Paul said, when I came to, uh, yeah. what is it, was it Corinth, I can, I can, or is it Galatia, I, I came to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. So nothing's wrong mm-hmm. with bringing in the moral issues. We have to do a degree, but it should be overwhelmed by our preaching of Christ crucified. Well, Jesus isn't simply a good philosophy or a good teaching. Jesus is the answer. 
and we're the only ones that can bring it, are the Christians. So we better bring it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, gentlemen, we're back to why don't we forgive ourselves. Uh, uh, interesting comment came in from a listener. It's a little bit of a longer one, but hang in there with me. I've heard talk about this idea of having trouble forgiving yourself for many years, and it's never quite set well with me. Where in the Bible do we see anything about forgiving ourselves? What we see in the Psalms probably comes closest to it, where David calls out for repentance to the Lord time and time and time again. But this idea of forgiving ourselves, I think, is missing Scripture. So what I'm saying is that rather than forgiving ourselves, our focus should be on repentance towards a holy and gracious God. I think there's a distinction there. In one, the focus is on ourselves. In the other, the focus is on the one we've truly offended and His grace. That's good theology. Well, it's got to be both. Yes, we take sin seriously. We repent and we focus on God's grace, and we don't want to be staring at our belly button and uh, me, me, me. On the other hand, when First John 1, 9 was written, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That was written for a reason, and the reason was to assure these poor believers that their sins were forgiven. And if, and so you're right, though. She's right or he's right in that I don't know a verse that says forgive yourself. But on the other hand, it, there are verses that talk about forgive, uh, you know, forgive others and forgive those who have sinned against you. That would include yourself, you know. Yeah, one way I would <clears throat> tend to think about God's forgiveness is that the power of the past is no longer happening within the present. When, when God forgives us and our sins are as far as the east is from the west, and there's sort of just this holy forgetfulness that somehow God enters into with that, it means that the power of our past is no longer active in our present. And, and while there may not be a specific scripture that talks about forgiving ourselves, um, we're back to that idea that scripture gives us ideas of what life is like in God's kingdom. There's also not a specific passage of scripture that says, thou shall not take cocaine. And yet we know that that is uh, something that would not be consistent with the Christian life because it does say things like don't be controlled by a for, by uh, alcohol, be filled with the Spirit, some of these things. So when, uh, when interpreters of Scripture get into it, they talk about what does the Scripture say and then what are the potential implications within the range of what Scripture is saying? And so I think what we're talking about here is maybe Scripture doesn't have a verse They go and forgive yourself. But when we start talking about living within the forgiveness of God and that the power of the past is no longer in our present, we're living in kind of this state of forgiveness that allows us to forgive one another, forgive ourselves, those kinds of things would be a potential way to think about it. And I just thought of a yeah. verse. Paul says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and yeah. straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal, goal of the call of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So there's a verse where Paul forgot. I mean, he had a lot of baggage when he came into the church with all the persecuting he did. He forgot it and strained ahead for the upward call of God in Christ. One of the ways to think of it is this. Uh, when I was a kid, I liked to play in the mud. I'm an adult. I still enjoy doing that. <laughs> but my, my wife won't let me in the house with dirty clothes. My responsibility is to admit that I'm dirty and to let the Lord literally take those dirty clothes off of me and then put his new garment of righteousness on me. If the emphasis is on me forgiving myself, I've missed the point. The emphasis is on Jesus has forgiven me, therefore I glory in that, I walk in that, and I share that truth with others. But if the focus keeps coming back to me and what I've done and how I need to keep forgiving myself, I think we missed the point. I can't forgive myself 
without first being forgiven by Jesus. But I don't think it's so much as forgiving myself as now I'm a new creature who has a new opportunity to tell the world about the one who loves me so much. Mm. Well said, Tom Parrish. All right, uh, another comment by a listener. Even though I know I've been forgiven, sometimes my pride leads me to continue to be embarrassed by my sin and what I have done, and then I need to repent for my pride. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the human condition, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can uh, completely empathize, sympathize with that that point of view. And, and I think, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier before the break that the hallmark of, of a follower of Jesus is somebody who has been broken and is consistently being broken in the idea that um, that, that pride is, is being broken and rebroken. I know it says... Uh, in Matthew, that blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And, and that idea of meekness is the idea of of a horse that has been broken, that it is, um, it's a power that is now under control of the master, and, and you have to be willing to be broken. Uh, and even that idea of inheriting the earth, it's, it's God's uh, kings and queens in the language of Narnia that are going to be inheriting the earth. And, and the only people that do that are those that live in this place of meekness or brokenness. So uh, that's an ongoing battle I think we all have, obviously. I think I've told a lot of children's sermons in my life, children's stories, so maybe this will help the listener. Uh, I used to, I was involved in football and track, and I would throw the shot put and the discus and do some running. The one thing I could never do, though, is you know how they do these long jumps, and they would jump, I think the world record is 27 feet or something. I learned that I can only have pride if I can jump 50 feet. The problem is I can never jump 50 feet. And so every time the pride starts to well up within me, the Lord reminds me, you're not a good jumper. And I have to go back and throw myself at his mercy. And the only way I get rid of pride or keep dealing with my life is to keep being honest about who I am and who Jesus is for me. I like it. Nice nice comment. I like that very much. All right. Here's another question that came in. And um, the listener said this, divorce happens in the church, period. How can we really break the yoke of guilt and love those suffering through a divorce? And the awkward pause always suggests that these guys never get the questions in advance. Because if you listen carefully, the silence is their wheels turning in their head. <laughs> and their noisy wheels. And the noisy wheels, yes. It is mm. a problem well, you know, I, in the sense that we have a tendency to avoid people that are going through a lot of conflict. Uh, I think that is an easy thing to do in the church because people don't know what to say. And that's why I did a lot of teaching of active listening sharing back the feeling and content. And I can always share the gospel then with people. And so people going through divorce that are hurting, I literally had to get to a point where I would put them on my phone calendar and call them on a regular basis or meet with them in a, you know, where I could in a public setting or if I could meet with them with somebody else if it was a female so that I could listen to them and assure them, you know, and help correct even some of their thinking. Because when we go through this kind of trauma, none of us thinks clearly. We're all hurting. And we need a way to be able to express that and deal with that. The advantage is, and I know this happens, and I'm sure, Peter, maybe you've seen it, and, and Tom and Bill, that, that if you're willing to spend that kind of time with people, I've seen reconciliation take place, even after divorce has been finalized, where the couple comes back together, repents before one another, and literally gets remarried. And I've seen that several times. Mm. Yeah, boy, it's um, and and I think that uh, separation is an underutilized resource uh, often because there's such a stigma associated with that. Oh, did you hear that they're separated? I mean, the Christian grapevine starts going nuts along those lines, and that isn't helpful for people in in these really difficult and perilous times in their relationship to come around them, uh, Tom. And 
You know, I think part of it, too, is that this is maybe one of um, the most uh, underestimated issues in terms of its potential for confusion about um, what does uh, divorce mean in in the life of a believer. And and, uh, certainly when I had to start teaching the sexuality class at Northwestern that I had no business teaching and jumping into so many of these different topics, uh, divorce and remarriage was one of them. And I was a little surprised to learn how many different views there are, all of which are claiming to be anchored in scripture, but all of them would lead to very different conclusions about divorce itself. Uh, anything from the Catholic church to some, um, much more conservative reform traditions in the Protestant church would suggest there is actually no such thing as divorce. You, you, once the union is in place, it can't be rent. Uh, to, to divorce means to rend from. And uh, once that one flesh relationship has been instituted, even if the couple files papers at the state of Minnesota, for example, they don't actually get rent from that relationship. To the next view is, is you can get divorced, but then there's no remarriage or else it's adultery. To the next view being you can only get divorced with certain grounds, and people tend to interpret that as if there is immorality of some kind. And to the next view that as long as people have a repentant heart, they can get remarried. And so, you know, I think we avoid this issue because there's a real lack of clarity. There's a real lack of, of, of investing in each other's relationships to even know what to do and how to proceed. Um, what does redemption look like in the situation? And I'm sure uh, there's many, many of our listeners listening now that, that know of that confusion. It's, it's one of those places that I have a hard time knowing where to land entirely in those categories because there seems to be scriptural evidence uh, across that whole continuum. And, you know, on this issue, I want to maintain two things. Number one, I do want to maintain what Jesus said about divorce and remarriage and not budge on that. At the same time, I want to hold firm that there's forgiveness through Christ and that uh, we're all in a messy world. We all sin. So I want to be compassionate, but I also don't want to abandon the very, I think, (laughs) uh, heavy-duty, rather clear, teaching that Jesus said, if you get divorced and remarried, you're committing adultery. So I I think I want to uphold the words of Christ, but then show mercy to those who have blown it, because we all have in in some area of our lives. But, you know, my my concern for the church on divorce and remarriage, there's almost no stigma left anymore. I mean, the church I grew up in in Omaha, partly grew up in, wonderful church, but the, the, the pastor, one of the pastors there, married a divorced woman, they got divorced. He married another woman. They got divorced. And then he married another woman, stayed in the pulpit the whole time. They saw three different wives from this pastor, and I think he should have stepped down. And, and, and uh, what he was teaching everybody was, hey, if the pastor can do it, I can do it. Yeah. And there, there's a problem with stigma in divorce, but there's a problem of not having any stigma on it, too. So there's a balance in this stuff. I want to maintain what Jesus taught about it. I want to do it compassionately, but uh, there you go. All right. We'll take a little break. We'll be back with more Guide Talk. We have time for a few more questions. If you've got one, let me know what it is. Text it to 877-933-2484. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. Guy Talk is uh, happening. Power panel, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastors Tom Brock, and Tom Parrish. We're talking about uh, why we don't forgive ourselves. That's been one of the bigger topics today, which has been interesting. I'm wondering, gentlemen, how um, do you express your thanks to God today for his forgiveness? 
I mean, when you're giving thanks to God, I mean, sometimes when you're thanking somebody, you do it a little casually, and I can find myself doing that the same way to God sometimes. Hey, Lord, thank you for this day, and, you know, it's kind of what you say to the the checkout guy at the store. <laughs> hey, thanks for doing that. <laughs> you know, it's like there should be a different uh, intensity or a different sincerity or something. But when we are thanking the God of the universe for forgiving our sins, how do we express that? And I think part of it, Bill, is, you know, you referenced the idea of just even that, that gratefulness or lack thereof. I, I once heard a quote that said, you know, we spend so much time looking up the ladder in life, whatever that ladder is, vocationally or where we think we should be spiritually or relationally with people. And when we spend time looking up the ladder, we end up in these places of dissatisfaction all the time. But if you're looking down the ladder of of maybe what could be happening in your life or what could be going on in, in your spiritual realm and your relational realm, your vocational realm, something like that, you, you tend to uh, come up with a place of gratefulness. And uh, it, to have a heart of authentic gratefulness is one of those, I think, spiritual barometers um, that we can lean into. Uh, obviously, we want to do those things like have our quiet times and, and pray and, and attend church and serve in those sorts of things. But I think the heart is such an interesting barometer for where we are uh, in, in our, in our journey. And when I'm operating out of a lack of gratefulness, it's an indication that maybe I need a different perspective. Uh, and usually for me that involves, uh, looking down the ladder. And I don't mean looking at, um, that vocationally as much as it is, you know, look at the mess that has been my life, uh, at different times in my life and how grateful I am to, to even just have this, uh, cold cup of water today. Some of mm-hmm. these things, you know, it really does bring perspective, at least for me. I don't know that that would for everybody. When I had a small group of men that would meet with me on a regular basis, about 10 weeks into it, one of the gentlemen said, uh, you know, I have been bitter at my brother all my life. We've had fights. We can't get along. You know, when uh, mom and dad died, we set an exercise at the church and all this and that. And and, uh, so he talked about that. A couple more weeks went by, and we talked about forgiving, and he didn't seem to get it. A couple more weeks went by, and he came in and talked about how he had hurt his wife. And he needed her forgiveness, and she did forgive him for that. And he came in to rejoice and say, guys, my wife forgave me, and, you know, you advised me to do that. It was so good. And I remember one of the other guys looking at him and saying, then how thankful are you? Are you thankful enough to go out and forgive your brother? Hmm. And what I learned in, in forgiveness, it's not an emotion. It's a choice. We choose to go out and do what Jesus commanded us to do because of what he's already done for us. And I think the problem is the I can't wait for the emotion. My emotions go up and down, but I want to obey. And part of the way I say thank you to Jesus is to do what he's already commanded in terms of forgiving others, telling others the good news, sacrificing on behalf of others. And, Bill, for me, the way I thank God for forgiving my sins is this. I, Before I go to bed every night, I think back through the day, and I thank God for five things that he did for me that day. Mm. And very often, the the last thing I thank God for is, thank you for forgiving my sins and saving me through Christ, because that's the main thing. And uh, so I think to regularly just say it, God, thank you that you've forgiven this sinner and you brought me to, into eternal life through Christ's death and resurrection. And, you know, I, I, and when I go to bed now, I thank God for my nice warm bed. Mm-hmm. I thank thank God for my house. I mean, just, just the, the basics. Think of all the people in the world that don't have what we have. And, uh, uh, but, but more than that, on the spirit, not the material level, but on the spiritual level, we've got forgiveness of sins and eternity in heaven because of Christ. Lots of people don't have that. So we need to regularly thank God for it. I, pretty much I, I do that almost every night. 
but then uh, that also keeps up in my mind that I need to be talking to people about Christ. I need to be spending my money for missionaries to, to bring the gospel, etc. Thank you for that, uh, Tom. So when Jesus says you need to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves, uh, what were we supposed to be understanding? How are serpents wise? Anybody know? Well, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to these their own kind than the sons of the kingdom, which means uh, that the evil people can be kind of shrewd and smart in, in some ways. They're dumb, ultimately, because of, of where it all, all is going to land them. But, you know, you, you watch some of these people that are just outright anti-God. They can be so persuasive. I mean, watch, you know, Christopher Hitchens and, and people like this, and they can be smooth as silk and very intellectual. But what Paul said is, I don't want to know what these people's words are. The kingdom of God is in power. What's the power? Where is the power in these people's lives to, to heal people, bring people uh, forgiveness and, and hope? And You know, you don't see that in atheism, no matter how eloquent they are. So the, 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 the what, what exactly is the verse? The sons of darkness are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. <laughs> well, I think of snakes. I don't know much about them, but they, uh, their first line of defense, I think, is to escape to safety. Um, and they're, they're always alert to dangers. So maybe, maybe that was what those listeners of that would be understanding them to be. Because I'm not around snakes, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't. I, can't, I confess, I haven't heard a great teaching either way on on uh, that piece of it. Um, if there is a shrewdness at- attached to it, it would seem that um, if we do have some wisdom to be able to impart, that we're harmless with that, that we don't use it to beat people over the head uh, and some of those um, kinds of ideas that to be harmless. Um, would be to be that, but Bill, I, I think your uh, your take on that idea about serpents and and just their understanding of of what's happening in the circumstances around them and knowing what to do and sometimes running from that uh, would be part of this puzzle as well. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it goes back to Genesis with the serpent in the garden because uh, you know it was crafty. It was yeah. able to wiggle its way in and, and convince Eve uh, what to do, and uh, I think that has a lot to do with it. But I think on the other hand, in terms of this teaching, to be gentle as doves means that we get the malice out of what we do. We're not going to do it to harm others or to manipulate others. But the application of wisdom, you know, also comes with a thing called craftiness. And the application of wisdom is what most of us don't seem to do well. That is taking the truth and applying it directly to life. And so I think it's, you know, be apply the truth to life, but do it in a way that doesn't manipulate others, but gives them real choices. Mm Mm-hmm. Just a couple of minutes left, uh, gentlemen. A uh, question just came in from a listener. Hebrews 6, verse 4, and the unpardonable sin in the Gospels. Can one be beyond grace and repentance and be of no use? I grew up in the church, drifted away, and recently have been drawn back with a greater intensity than ever before. I believe I have truly repented and have cut the major sinful ways that I was rooted in, but I am struggling with finding peace in my forgiveness due to these verses. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, only, the, the only unforgivable sin, sin is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, which means I, I just continue and perpetually reject the reality of God. And so I'll go back to something we were all talking about earlier, that uh, sin and struggle in our life is not evidence of a hard heart, necessarily. The evidence of the hard heart is the raging fist at God that is perpetual and ongoing. But um, but anybody can return to the kingdom. God's grace is just simply that good. It doesn't mean we have the freedom from sin in the midst of all of that. It does mean that we're working with the Savior on our behalf. Let me read Hebrews... 
Oh, I'm sorry, Tom. Let me just read Hebrews uh, yeah, 6 4. You go right ahead. Yeah. Yep. There you uh, go. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. That's the verse. Yeah, it's fair. Go ahead, Tom. And, and if, they, if they then trample underfoot the blood of Christ and regard it as unclean, something like that. And and so that verse, I mean, I, I understand this guy. I mean, look, I, I left Christ, and now I want to come back, but that verse looks makes it look like I can't come back. I don't think that's what it's saying. This uh, Once you trample underfoot the blood of Christ, it, it, it's such a clear rejection, 100% rejection of Christ. I don't think those people ever come back. But people that wander and leave and, and go off into the far country like the prodigal son, well, the prodigal son got to come back home, and God let him come back home. They're not talking about the prodigal son in, in Hebrews there. They're talking about someone who is 100% rejected Christ and has stayed like that yeah. and has no intention of coming back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another question come in from a listener we don't have time for, and it's actually going to be a whole other show, and I know an author I can call to talk about this, uh, a listener named Ray. So, Ray, I apologize we didn't get to your question, but I will, I will tackle it in a whole other show sometime. That, uh, I sure appreciate uh, Guy Talk, and thank you so much, uh, guys, for coming on and, and being part of the show once again. Thank you, great to be here. Thank yep. you. So I want to thank Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastors Tom Parrish, and Tom Brock for being the power panel today. I've sure enjoyed it. I hope you have, too. Thanks for all the great comments that came in. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, uh, Mark McClish is going to be joining me. He is a former uh, U.S. Uh, Marshal for 26 years, and he taught for nine years at the interrogation training, how to ask really good questions and how to uh, figure out when people are being deceptive. You know, the Bible says, thou shalt not lie. And uh, we're going to have a great hour with Mark coming up next. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.